Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. My guest in this program is Sam Labuddy, a catalyst, if not the catalyst, in getting dolphins out of the tuna nets. Sam Labuddy is a longtime activist with the Earth Island Institute. In this conversation, we discuss the history and significance of dolphins, endangered species in Taiwan, and some reasons for an economic boycott of products made of redwood trees. This program was originally broadcast in September of 1992 when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas. Sam, welcome to Government Politics and Ideas. Thanks for having me. Tell us about the uh, tuna issue uh, with dolphins and what your role is and what you were able to achieve. Well, the, it's a little complex, but uh, basically the way the story unfolded is I had uh, left the university in 1986 with a degree in biology and was trying to uh, work my way down to the rainforests of South America, see if I couldn't do something to stop the uh, same thing from happening down there that has uh, happened so completely up here in, the, in the North America. And the forests were just pretty much leveled and, and walked away from. And um, I was looking for an entry-level position in the field of biology. and. Um, the first offer I got was from the U.S. government's National Marine Fisheries Service, and they put me up, set me up as a scientific observer on board a foreign fishing vessel in Alaskan waters. And I was there for a couple months, and when I came back, they said, um, how would you like to be a scientific observer on a tuna boat in San Diego? And that's all they told me, and I thought, no, Valley Boys on the High Seas isn't exactly my idea of an uh, expansive life experience. And, and I, I started trying to see about getting farther south to the rainforest and the Amazon again. And it was a couple months later, I walked into the offices of Earth Island Institute and heard this story, which I had a very difficult time believing and accepting. And the story was that seven million dolphins had been killed by U.S. and Latin American tuna fishermen in the last 30 years as a way to catch can tuna that was used for canning and sold in the United States. And I was horrified uh, that this type of slaughter could go on at this sort of level with 80% of some dolphin populations being wiped off the face of the earth and nobody even knowing about it. And um, my first response to Earth Island was, well, why aren't you telling anybody? And they said, well, we're, we're trying, but uh, what we need is some film footage so we can really show people what's happening. And I said, okay, great. I'll take this job that the federal government offered me, and I'll get you all the film footage you want. And they said, well, that's very noble of you, but um, they won't, the U.S. government won't let cameras on tuna boats. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, they're sort of in bed with the tuna industry. And um, a lot of federal agencies are, are very protective of commercial interests, even when it uh, uh, goes against... Uh, defending the public trust or wildlife populations or, or, or regional ecosystems. And so what I had to do was go undercover uh, in New Mexico and get a job on a foreign tuna boat where there wasn't quite as much sensitivity to this issue. And I spent several months there taking pictures of hundreds of dolphins being routinely hunted down with helicopter speed boats and explosives and trapped intentionally in these mile-long circular nets because the fishermen knew if they caught the dolphin herds in this area that many times there would be large schools of tuna swimming beneath dolphins were sacrificed as um, needlessly as, as, uh, as pawns, really. And um, I brought the film footage back, and with Earth Island Institute's help, we started a national tuna boycott and got the biggest tuna companies in the world to um, stop buying dolphin unsafe tuna. And uh, the boycott uh, and the concept and implementation of dolphin safe is spread worldwide. And we're hoping that uh, right now Earth Island Institute is working on legislation 
maybe pass the ball and hopefully we'll end percenting on Dolphins once and for all. And we will have looked at, uh, I guess, a five-year struggle here from beginning to end to stop the largest slaughter of marine mammals in history. Tell us about the significance of dolphins, why they are special animals. Well, to me, personally, they're special because they're the only wild creature on the planet that values human life. You don't have to look very far through library records to see dozens or scores or hundreds of cases of dolphins coming to the salvation of human beings, whether they're being lost at sea or in danger of drowning or um, um, being threatened by shark attacks. Um, and it's an, an interesting thing, really, when you think about uh, why a dolphin would risk its own life, say in the case of intervening in a shark attack, to save the life of a human being. Um, dolphins have long been noted for their own compassion toward one another, um, and even to other cetaceans, but it takes quite a leap of faith on the part of the dolphin to, to extend that compassion to a distinctly non-cetacean or non-dolphin-like uh, animal, uh, such as a human being, and, and, and save it. And I think that comes out of maybe the dolphins, uh, the difference the dolphins experienced in their evolution, their natural selection. Um, we like to think of the life of a dolphin as very carefree and easy, but uh, we forget that the ocean is an environment that is, for all intents and purposes, very hostile to mammalian life. It's an environment we would only survive in a few hours, and yet the dolphins thrive there, and they do this, and they're able to do this by virtue of their coherence as a social unit. The dolphins work together, and if you ask a human being, for instance, about survival, they would, they would think about survival in terms of an individual were able to ask dolphins about survival, I believe that they would respond by uh, identifying survival as a function of the herd, as a function of the community. And indeed, that's the way dolphins manage to feed and, and ward off predators and, and survive out there. It's sort of this mobile aquatic community. And um, so, you know, the dolphins, uh, one thing that's very important to remember about them is that they don't breathe uh, involuntarily. Uh, every breath a dolphin takes is a result of conscious effort. And that's an incredible um, constraint to have uh, upon, a, upon survival. Um, you can't anesthetize a dolphin, for instance. They die. They simply don't stop breathing. Whereas human beings can pass out, fall down drunk, uh, get hit in the head, and wake up a few hours later and everything's fine. It doesn't work for a dolphin. And when you think about an animal that has this incredible interdependence upon the other members of its, of its community, um, when at any moment, um, for human beings, this would be the same as if any moment uh, the person sitting next to you, a member of your family, someone you work with, someone you rely on, simply died because they forgot to breathe. You understand a little bit more about why the dolphins uh, have this incredible compassion for one another, uh, or what appears to be compassion. Um, millions of years ago when dolphins were still evolving, natural selection would have favored those species and, and, and populations and individuals of dolphins that exhibited this help and helpingness toward one another. It would have, it would have uh, uh, reinforced itself by um, fostering the chances for those particular dolphins to survive. And so natural selection sort of uh, favored dolphins that helped one another, that, that came to one another's aid, that looked out for one another. And I think this sort of you know, compassion, for lack of a better word, has been so deeply ingrained in the dolphins that they extend it to other um, high-order intelligence uh, mammals like human beings. Um, I feel like it's a gift, it's a miracle. We can look the entire universe over for the, as long as human beings manage to survive and never find another species uh, with such a naturally um, loving predisposition toward human beings. And we should, do, I think, do a little more toward recognizing this as the gift that it is rather than taking it for granted and, and just trashing the dolphins because it's easy to uh, exploit them and sacrifice them to make money during tuna fishing.
So that was kind of your motivation uh, to get involved in that project, was the protection of the dolphins and the many that have been uh, needlessly killed. Yeah, the, I think the philosophy about it all came later. And initially, I had never had any direct experiences with dolphins. I just uh, had this sort of perception of them as very uh, animate, uh, intelligent, and uh, amazing creatures. And I couldn't believe that uh, seven million could be slaughtered without anybody knowing about it. Um, I, I basically went and did that particular undercover investigation to provide the environmental community with the uh, documentation that they needed to show people what was really happening. I mean, that's a lot of work that the environmental community does is to try and show people what's what's really going on out there because generally it's much, much worse than we imagine. I know you're involved in um, and concerned about the endangered species that are being eaten uh, for the ideas of, of virility or aphrodisiacs uh, in Taiwan and in Southeast Asia. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what's going on there and why um, it's of such concern that this is happening in Taiwan on an international economic basis. Well, the endangered species traffic in the world is certainly not limited to animals being eaten, but there is a uh, incredible fascination among uh, particularly uh, East Asians, uh, Southeast Asians, Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan, Thailand, areas like that. Um, with procuring uh, body parts from, from animals like bears, tigers, monkeys, snakes, birds. And it's sort of this strange um, uh, idea, this, this archaic sort of cultural tradition of eating animals in order to and their body parts in order to gain um, the uh, characteristics of those animals. Um, uh, they like to eat people in Taiwan, for instance, like to eat tigers. Uh, because they feel like they get the night vision and sexual virility of the tiger, and some parts of the tiger are good for things like uh, arthritis and uh, um, sleeplessness and maybe warts or, or boils. And the, and the Koreans have a particular fascination with bear gallbladders because they feel like they get the strength of the bear. And there's, a, there's a great deal of status attached in some circles to being able to wine and dine your friends on very exotic animals. It's sort of like the movie The Freshman. Um, the more endangered an animal is, the... Um, more you know, pricier it is, and the more status is attached to being able to eat it and, and, and share it with your friends. Um, and Taiwan, for instance, uh, I mean, what we're talking about with Taiwan is a nation that's not even recognized as a nation by the United Nations. They're not a signatory to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Uh, they're not a signatory to anything having to do with um, international protection of wildlife. And what you've essentially got is a nation of 15 million people, which serves as the international headquarters for black market trade and endangered species. You can go to the streets of Taiwan and buy anything from a panda uh, to a rare tiger uh, to black bear parts. And there are no black bears in Taiwan. These parts come from the United States, for instance. They're smuggled um, into Taiwan and, uh, and uh, bought up by the, by the local people there to uh, satisfy these, uh, these, these cultural traditions. And, um, you know, there's naturally no medical uh, evidence to support or corroborate the, the uh, uh, alleged uh, beneficiary uh, cures and, and remedies that come from wildlife parts. And even if there was, I think, you know, when you're talking about an animal like a panda, uh, which there are less than a thousand of in the world, um, it certainly seems very selfish and, and uh, hedonistic and uh, almost sacrilegious to sacrifice a panda because you have this perception that somehow it's going to help you make it through the night or uh, 
you'll pardon the expression, get it up for your loved one. Um, so I mean, it's it's really uh, it's really tragedy. It's something that needs to be to need to be halted. I and mean, there is no wildlife in Taiwan. Uh, it's essentially it's been it's been eradicated. But but what it has become is basically a distribution, a brokerage point uh, for wildlife coming out of China, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Indonesia, even the United States, and, and places like Alaska. Um, you know, everything from ivory to black bear gallbladders and, and mountain lion kidneys and hearts. And it's um, it's barbaric. It's a tradition that needs to be uh, brought to the light of day and exposed uh, for for really how how shallow and and, and, and insubstantial it is, and how 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 uh, terribly um, dangerous effect it can have on even the survival of the species. I mean, you can go to the streets of Taiwan. Anybody can go there, and you can see orangutans and snow leopards and and, and other wildlife species that are critically endangered sitting there in cages, uh, up for sale to the, to the first person will come by and, you know, lay down the, you know, a bid on it. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Government, Politics, and Ideas. My name is Barry Vogel. My guest this evening is Sam Labuddy, talking about uh, what's available and the problems on, uh, on a worldwide ecological basis in uh, Taiwan. Uh, and other parts of Southeast Asia, I would presume, but it's um, more centered in Taiwan because of their economic base. Uh, uh, Taiwan being uh, probably the richest country in the world, having the largest cash reserves. Is that right? That's true. There's a, there's close to 100 billion dollars in cash reserves in Taiwan, and I think the people there are kind of bored or something. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure what it, what exactly the problem is, but it seems as if they uh, um, they're they're very into exotic type of things, and uh, things that are exotic are generally rare, and the rarest things in the world now, besides fine art, are certain species of animals, and so this, there's kind of this uh, exacerbated problem here. The rarer species gets for a certain number of people, the more desirable it is as something they want to possess, as if somehow that's going to uh, uh, make them more of an individual or, 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 or a whole or, or happier person. And I think some work needs to be done to try and uh, disabuse people of this notion and in the international community to uh, uh, really discuss its lack of acceptability as far as a uh, you know, operant motive on the part of these people. Well, we're talking about that now, but what other uh, ideas do you have in mind to expose it and uh, what other work do you feel that needs to be done? Well, we're in the process of uh, pulling together some film footage to prepare a video now called Made in Taiwan. and. Uh, what we want to do is basically let people know that um, when they buy products from, from Taiwan, they're really supporting the biggest environmental criminals in the world on a per capita basis. I mean, Taiwan is just not an international headquarters for trafficking endangered species. It's home to it's home to one of the largest drift net fleets in the world. Drift nets being these 40 to 60 mile long nets that are laid out in the ocean to catch and kill everything that moves. And fishermen uh, sort through them. And this was another documentary. Uh, undercover documentary uh, I participated in in 1989 in the North Pacific. Um, you've got a thousand plus boats out there operating in the North Pacific every night that collectively put 30 to 40,000 miles of net in the water each night. That's enough to go from um, Northern California to Tokyo and back six times. And these are sheer walls of, of single strand monofilament nylon net. They're about 10 to 15 meters deep and they're laid out in 30, 40 mile long sections and they kill literally hundreds of thousands of marine millions of seabirds, hundreds of thousands of sharks and other non-target species each year. Fishermen lay their nets out in the night, come back in the morning, pick them up, 
they take what is commercially marketable and the rest, the whales, the seabirds, the marine mammals, the sea turtles, all gets thrown back as floating compost. Um, and we're trying to, you know, Taiwan has got the second biggest drift net fleet in the world. They're also um, right behind Japan in terms of uh, logging off uh, rainforests in Southeast Asia. People think about rainforest being in the Amazon, but the second biggest rainforest in the world is down in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Borneo, Java, places like that. And the Japanese and the Taiwanese are just down there plundering it, clear-cutting hundreds of square miles every year. Um, so, Well, Sam, uh, what can the average person do about it, uh, an interested listener? Well, I think, uh, I think you have to get, you can certainly um, be a little, uh, you can use your own personal screening process about the things that you buy. Um, I personally don't buy anything from Taiwan if I can avoid it or if I know about it. It's sometimes difficult to know, but I think the, the Made in Taiwan logo is something that uh, uh, we're all very familiar with. And I think if people um, you know, would do that, stop buying things that say Made in Taiwan, and indicate to the Taiwanese consulate or, or whoever they feel is appropriate that uh, till Taiwan cleans up its act and gets out of drift netting and clear-cutting rainforests and, and be, you know, being the international brokers and, and endangered species, that they can, they can take their business elsewhere. Um, I think that'd be quite significant to them. The U.S. is uh, very strongly economically bound to Taiwan, and uh, a great deal of Taiwan's surplus wealth uh, has come out of the back pockets of uh, American people. Um, I think that would be a very effective uh, way of, of letting them know that, that people are looking. Uh, scrutiny is, is very good for in terms of honesty, I think. And, um, you know, it's a different world than it was 5,000 years ago, um, you know, or even 500 or 50 years ago. And we just aren't in a uh, situation from the standpoint of biodiversity or, or, or vigor of the planetary ecosystem that we can, uh, that we can allow or afford or, or desire that species would become extinct because of some personal indulgence on the part of uh, uh, you know, a, very, a relatively small culture. Uh, it might be part of the problem. I'm not sure. You know, the Taiwanese haven't been established on that island for even 50 years, and I think maybe um, They've, there's been sort of some there's been some sort of perversion maybe of the traditional kind of uh, uh, relationship with nature um, you know in that I don't know this is, it's a very funny ritual that, that takes place I mean when you when you when you look at pictures that show a, a live tiger from a subspecies of, of Southeast Asian tigers that maybe only number two or three dozen when you see an individual out of this remnant population uh, that once covered hundreds of square miles. You know, population's been reduced to a couple dozen creatures. When you see one of the individuals in this population um, turned upside down, staked out uh, while it's still alive by its, its, its four legs, and then publicly auctioned piece by piece, the heart, the liver, the, the lungs, the blood, the hide, the tongue, the, the paws, everything. And then as soon as the auction is finished, they dismember it and everybody goes home with their respective parts, um, you really have to wonder about, um, you know, priorities, I think. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that comes to my mind, priorities. Is it more important that we satisfy some um, uh, questionable, at best questionable ideas that some people have about, the, about the, the alleged value of these animals from a medicinal standpoint, or is it, or is it, a, uh, is it a little more uh, heuristic to look at the... Uh, value of these animals thriving and surviving in the wild um, and the question of, you know, if, if this continues, will these animals even exist? Um, 
I mean, to me, I think extinction is the ultimate spin of sin of humankind to take four billion years of evolution and slam duck it into the compost pile and walk away and go, oh, well, that's too bad. That's really callous. That's really, uh, really bespeaks a very limited vision or lack of, of one completely. Okay. Have you seen a tiger staked out the way you describe? Yeah, we have a whole series of photographs about a uh, public auction that went on over in, uh, I think it was Taiwan back in 1986 and it's uh, you know it's not an easy thing to, to get pictures of you know it's uh, most of the stuff is done completely underground and these photographs this series of photographs came to light really as a fluke um, but it's indicative of the type of thing that goes on year in and year out over there if our listeners are interested in uh, contacting you or uh, your group about this issue how can they do that oh, they can write to uh, Earth Island Institute in San Francisco just uh, care of the Endangered Species Project. Um, and their address? It's 300 Broadway, um, number 28 in San Francisco, 94109. Sam, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about uh, an issue that's of great concern to me, and that's the uh, redwoods and the forests in Mendocino County and Humboldt County, in the northwest part of uh, California. And you had an, an idea that kind of captured my interest, and that is uh, promoting a boycott on anything made from redwood. I'd like you to talk about that, uh, particularly the, uh, the lawn chairs with wheels and the trellises uh, made out of thousand-year-old trees. Well, I was building a gate. The idea occurred to me a few months ago. I was building a gate for my garden, and I went down the lumber yard, and they had two types of wood, Douglas fir and, and, and redwood. And and I looked at this redwood, and people were coming by and ooing and eyeing over it and clabbing pieces of it. And I thought, wow, this is really amazing. I'm, look I'm looking at 15-year-old lumber, 1,500-year-old lumber here. And I went around the corner, and there were these deck chairs, you know, these big clunky things made out of redwood with little wheels on them and, and gaudy-colored cushions. And I thought, fascinating, lawn chairs that are already over 1,000 years old. And I was, I was completely revolted and repulsed by these things. And I thought of all these hundreds or thousands, or really hundreds of thousands of people across the United States who were really, I think, fairly unwittingly contributing to um, the removal of the last stands of, of, of old-growth redwood in California. I mean, I remember growing up in southern Indiana, and there were people that had redwood chair, redwood lawn furniture there. And, you know, if you, if you, if you take some of this redwood lawn furniture, rose trellises and, and, and things, these little knickknacks they make for gardens, small gardens and, and urban patios and things. And then you, and you pile a bunch of them up next to a 700-year-old redwood tree. The choice is really easy for me on what I want. Um, I'll sit on the ground, I mean, before I would, I would, I would put my butt uh, or my person in a redwood lawn chair. I think to me, owning a redwood lawn, or owning redwood lawn furniture or trellises or things like this, is, is sort of a social faux pas. It's the kind of thing that would, would completely alienate me from, from my neighbors. If, if, you know, I was like, especially if they brought home a bunch of new, you know, new redwood furniture and were beaming with pride about it. I mean, if keeping up with the Joneses means going out and buying a redwood patio set, um, then, then I think I would, I would be fairly happy um, uh, being without status in my neighborhood. And I think the people of United States and California in particular ought to really think about, um, you know, not buying any redwood products at all. If there's no demand for it, they're not going to cut down the trees. And if the loggers want to, you know, you know, build their entire houses and furnish their houses with redwood, that's fine. 
Um, I, but I think that it's, uh, you know, the, the tuna boycott was, was certainly the most, um, was the strongest economic boycott in human history without question. We had uh, tens of millions of people in the United States that would not eat canned tuna or tuna of any type for, for quite a while. And this resulted in international multi-billion dollar companies um, changing their policies, making 180 degree turnarounds. That was the power of the pocketbook. I mean, people talk about voting once every four years. But when you buy something, you vote every day. You vote for everybody that contributed to putting that product in front of you. If you're talking about food, you're talking about seeds, the plants, the pesticides, the harvesting, the packaging, everything. You vote for that. You ratify it. You make it possible and, and allow it to continue. And we're talking about the same thing with lumber products. Um, I ended up buying um, uh, some recycled oak uh, that had come off, a, it was siding for a house that it was piled up in, a, in, a, in a, one of these uh, alternative uh, urban recycling yards. Um, it was very cheap, it was very good wood, very solid, and it, I think it'll probably last at least as long as a redwood. And I feel good because it, um, if I hadn't bought it, it might have just sat there and gotten rotted or gotten eaten up by worms. But uh, I would strongly encourage that I think the people of California and the United States need to start a redwood boycott. We need to recognize that uh, if we stop buying this stuff, they're going to stop cutting down the trees because nobody's going to be, you know, you know, you, you can't, you can't, you don't cut down trees if you can't sell them. And uh, when we buy redwood furniture and trellises and, and knickknacks and doodads and things like that, uh, um, we're just as guilty and responsible as the guys that are out there wielding the chainsaws. There's no question. There's no question. Perhaps we're more guilty. I mean, because we're really the, we're really the, you know, we have the ability to say the buck stops here, and I'm not going to vote for for. For redwood lawn furniture or redwood products of any kind, and uh, and I think uh, I think we ought to start hissing a little bit at people that, that buy redwood in the lumber yards. You know, the same way that uh, maybe people have been uh, hissing at women that run around in uh, fur coats made out of cougars and cheetahs and foxes and things like this. It's, uh, time's got to change. Well, Sam, buddy, uh, thank you very much for telling us about how to vote with uh, the pocketbook on issues of uh, worldwide and global concern. Yeah, well, I, I think it's there's there's one thing that became very clear to me a few years ago when I started doing environmental work, and that's if you look at virtually any example of environmental destruction taking place on the planet, be it uh, regarding a habitat, an ecosystem, a wildlife species, or, or anything, you'll find that there's one unifying common thread, and that's that somebody's making a buck off of it. People don't destroy wetlands and uh, cut down forests and, and cause wildlife populations to become extinct because they enjoy it. They do it because it's profitable, it's lucrative, and somebody's willing to pay them to do it. And if you look at the people, we the people of the United States, with our incredibly profligate standard of living, um, the Western standard of living, what I equate with the planet standard of dying, uh, we who represent only maybe one twenty-fifth of the entire world population and yet use 40 to 70 percent of its resources annually, it's pretty clear that we're the ones that are paying for a lot of the environmental destruction that's taking place around the world. I mean, not just within our own borders here in the United States, but it's, you know, very much in Latin America um, and other nations. We are the ones that, uh, that make it possible. So. Thank you very much, Sam. Sam Labuddy is a longtime activist with the Earth Island Institute and one of the catalysts, if not the catalyst, in getting dolphins out of the nets in which tuna are caught. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. 
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.